Morning, Oak Mountain. My name is Walker Bird. I'm really glad to be with y'all this morning. I do have to say that Tom stole my joke. Uh, there was a thought of getting up here and introducing myself as Caleb Click, uh, <laughs> but I, I thought better of it. I, I will let you in on a day in the life of our staff and tell a quick story. We had a visitor in our church uh, in our offices the other day, and this person was being walked around by Sue Harris, and this person doesn't know many of us, and um, this person just knew that Caleb had just started and had a general idea about who Caleb uh, is and what he looked like and turned the corner into our office space and looked into Val Peterson's office. Is that Caleb Click? No, that's Simon Isles. <laughs> turned the corner again and looked into Chad Walker's office. Is that Caleb Click? No, that's Chad Walker. Turned the corner again looking into my office. Is that Caleb Click? Nope, it's not Caleb Click. <laughs> so... Uh, for better or for worse, I'm not Caleb Click. Uh, I'm Walker Bird. <laughs> but I am glad to be with you all this morning. Uh, as Caleb has introduced us to the Gospel of Mark, we've found out pretty quickly that this is a pedal-to-the-floor kind of gospel. Jesus is moving fast, and he's doing things, and things are happening. And our passage this morning in Mark chapter 2 is no different. Maybe that there's one little added wrinkle. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark 2. I'll give you a second to flip there. And as you're flipping, I'll take you back to middle school or high school English. Uh, at some point in your English class journey, you were exposed to diagramming plot lines of narratives, talking about how a narrative develops over the course of the story. And you know, I, I had the luxury and the um, distinct honor of being an English student of my mom, who's a middle school English teacher. So I was never afforded the chance to forget this. Um, so in a plot line, there's this event that happens that launches the narrative of the story. It's kind of the moment of conflict, and it's called the inciting incident. It, it launches the plot line of the story forward and starts the journey of the main character. A recent one that you guys may be well aware of is in the Hunger Games series. A couple of pages into the story, you see Katniss Everdeen rush to the front and to volunteer as tribute for the games for her sister, Prim. From that moment on, the story is irrevocably different. I remember reading that part of the story and simultaneously feeling all the emotions and not being able to put the book down for the better part of the next day. And Inciting incidents don't always have to be negative, though. They can actually be really positive as well. If you think about the story of Harry Potter, a couple of chapters into the Sorcerer's Stone, there's this interaction with this strange group of people, and Harry is a boy. And after the interaction goes on for a while, finally Hagrid looks at Harry and goes, Harry, you're a wizard. And in a moment, it makes sense of all the weird and strange occurrences that have happened in Harry's life prior, and it sets the stage for what's to come, all the adventure, all the journey, all the excitement that's to come over the course of seven books from there. So these inciting incidents jumpstart the conflict in the story, and they serve to give us a glimpse where the narrative might take us. 
And our passage in Mark chapter 2 functions in the exact same way. This is the first flashpoint of conflict in the life and ministry of Jesus. Conflict that for the first time in Mark's gospel catches the shadow of the cross. And yes, it's conflict that culminates at the cross, but it doesn't stop at the cross. It's conflict that continues today and that extends into your life and into my life. It's, con- it's not conflict over what Jesus has done. It's not conflict over his healing. It's not conflict over his actions or his miracles. It's conflict over his identity. It's conflict over who Jesus says that he is, who he's claiming to be. And while the primary interaction that happens in our story is between Jesus and the religious leaders, the same questions of Jesus' identity are asked of us, too. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you see Jesus? Do you know Jesus as he's revealed himself in his Gospels, in, in the Bible? Or are you working with some other misconstrued or misshaped idea of who he is? As we look at this passage, we'll see how Jesus reveals himself to be and how he defines himself. And we'll actually see that that's way better than any other idea that we could come up with in our head or chase or pursue or orient our lives around. The way he reveals himself as Jesus the King, Jesus our God, and Jesus the Christ, he does so in a way that we can confidently trust him. So I'd invite you to stand as you're able as we read God's word together. This is Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. He was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get, get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word. It's his holy, inspired, inerrant word. He's given it to us because he loves us, because he wants us to see that Jesus goes to great lengths to prove himself to be trustworthy, to prove himself to us that we can trust him. Pray with me. God, we thank you for the chance to be in your word, to open it up and to mine the riches that are there. Spirit, we pray that you would do what only you could do in this time and apply your word to our hearts. Be with us now, we pray. It's in Christ's name, amen.
You can take a seat. So picture the scene for a second. Jesus has come back to Capernaum, his base for his Galilean ministry, and a crowd has gathered inside of what's believed to be Peter's house. And it's packed. These weren't large rooms, so there's probably 50-ish people that are packed inside this one room. And the curiosity about who this miracle-working prophet man is has spread to the point where there's they're crammed in the doorpost. They're standing outside the window just so they could be in the, within earshot to listen to Jesus teach. And hustling onto the scene are these four friends, these four faithful, faith-filled friends, and they bring with them their paralyzed friend. But they can't get to Jesus. They can't get to him. They're blocked. Nobody will let them in. So they get creative. Maybe that's a nice way of saying they get destructive. They go up on the roof, and the roof would have functioned much like decks in our day and age function to where it might be a place that you go to escape the stuffiness of the house to catch a breeze, or if you're, it's a little cooler in the house, you go to catch a couple of rays of sun. So they go up on top, this flat roof, and they get to town, and they go to town. They get to work. They start ripping up the tiles of the roof, it literally translates from the original language, they unroofed the roof. It's pretty wild. And notice, we get no indication of what the reactions are like underneath. We have no idea if the crowd is bothered by the falling clay in front of them. We have no idea if Jesus is having to yell over the overhead excavation and the noise that comes with it. We have no idea if people are having to dodge chunks of tile and clay that are falling in front of them. But the next thing we do know is that this paralytic is lying in front of Jesus. And in verse 5, Jesus is so moved by their faith that he forgives the man of his sins. It's curious because he doesn't do what the friends or the paralytic or the crowd thought or wanted him to do. He doesn't address the most pressing issue, the man's paralysis. Instead, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. You could almost imagine the paralytic having this really confused look on his face and looking up at Jesus and saying, uh, thank you, I think. Um, but this isn't why I'm here, Jesus. I'm here for a totally different reason. And Jesus is going to come back to him and address him in a second. But first, he must address the religious leaders that are in the crowd who are grumbling in their hearts about what Jesus has just done. You see, they were good Hebrew students. They knew that what Jesus had just said is probably blasphemy, putting himself on the same level as God. And this makes the religious leaders really uncomfortable. And even though they don't say anything out loud, Jesus senses their hearts and he responds to their grumbling. He says, which is easier to forgive sins or to heal paralysis. To prove his point, he then turns to the paralytic and he says, rise, pick up your bed, go home. And the paralytic gets up. He picks up his bed and he walks out the door. And the crowd's stunned. You can almost picture the party that's going on on the roof above them. But they're stunned. They've never seen a man like this. Never seen a man who both has the authority to forgive and heals. And truthfully, neither have we. We've never seen a man like this. 
What kind of man speaks like this? What kind of man has this kind of authority? We're getting a glimpse at just who this Jesus guy is. And this story helps to round out our understanding of what all he has come to do. And I think what rises to the surface in this story are three identity markers of who Jesus is. Jesus the King, Jesus our God, and Jesus the Christ. So we'll spend some time and look at each one. First, trust Jesus because he is the King. As you start reading Mark's gospel, you'll quickly see that the gospel message is the proclamation that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God has happened in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The very first words on Jesus' lips in Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And each miraculous work done so far by Jesus, you think about casting out the evil spirit, healing the sick, curing the leper, each one of these things testifies to the kind of kingdom this is going to be. Jesus has come to set things right. He's come to make things whole. He's come that those in the desolate places might be welcomed into the kingdom. He's come to show that evil has no place in his kingdom. And this is what Jesus would have been teaching about in verse 2 when it says he was preaching the word to them. The word that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. The kingdom that we've all waited for is here. And he's showing these onlookers about what his kingdom is about. So whether or not those four faithful, faith-filled friends understood all of this, they were convinced that Jesus could do something about their friend's condition. If they could just get their friend in front of Jesus, maybe Jesus might work. Maybe Jesus would heal him. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus commands the paralytic to get up and walk, and he's a paralytic no more. Yet another snapshot rounding out our view of this new kingdom. But if I'm honest with you, I read this passage, and I hear myself talk, and there's some skepticism that bubbles up within me. I want to believe what I read here on the pages. I want to believe that these things are true, that in the kingdom of God, people are healed, paralytics walk, and that diseases are cured. But then I look around at the world that I inhabit, the world around me, and that's not the norm. That's not what I see. I want to believe that when Jesus speaks, darkness is pushed back. That's really compelling. And I think that's an actual implication of what we read here in Mark chapter 2. I want to believe that. But what I do see in the world around me, I see pain and loss and disease and hurt and suffering. And some of you probably don't need much convincing to track with me on that. It can feel sometimes like we're left to our own devices. It can feel maybe that God is quiet, that Jesus has left us. Or that he doesn't care. I find myself wrestling with Jesus. Jesus, these things sound great in theory, but you didn't move in that situation. Jesus, I want to believe you, but you didn't heal over there. And I think one of the reasons why Mark 2 and the story of the paralytic is preserved in the Bible for us is to push back some of those thoughts 
that bubble up within us when our skepticism comes out. The story of the paralytic is set up to encourage us that our pain, our suffering, our loss, our disease, our hurt, none of those are lost on Jesus. He doesn't ignore it. He cares deeply. And we see it in the tender and loving way that he moves towards the paralytic. He engages in love. He calls the man son. He cares. It's not lost on him. And we feel the friction between what we read in God's word and what we experience in life around us because we live in what theologians would call the already but not yet. That Jesus has already come to inaugurate, to begin his kingdom, to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. But he has not yet come back to complete that fulfillment. And already but not yet, we still deal with the implications of Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden. When Adam and Eve sin in the garden, the whole created order comes unraveled. Everything that God has pronounced good is now tainted with sin, including the physical world and including our bodies. And we deal with the consequences. We suffer, we groan, we ache, we long for redemption. And this former paralytic in Mark chapter 2 points us to hope that we have a compassionate king. The king Jesus has come and he is ushering in a kingdom in which all the consequences of the fall will be rolled back. And in the here and now, God can still heal. And he does. And praise the Lord when he does. Praise him when he does heal. But even if he doesn't, Mark 2 stands to show us that he's not blind to it. Whether healing comes in this life or in the next, our healing is certain. And it's a beautiful thing to think about in heaven. The most mangled body there will be King Jesus. You'll be in a resurrected body that's made new, that's made whole, that's made right. You'll be able to walk up to him, put your hand in his and feel the scars. You'll be able to put your hand on his side and feel where they pierced him. But your body will be whole, will be new, will be resurrected. This last August, uh, my grandfather passed away suddenly, and it was a shock to all of us. I mean, he was the epitome of a patriarch. He was a man's man, and um, we just kind of thought he would stand the test of time, that nothing would take him out. Over the last few years, we had watched uh, his knees start to give him some trouble and some pain. He was already really bow-legged, but over the course of the years and his body weight and the wear and tear of his knees, he'd become more and more bow-legged to the point to where it was just bone on bone right there on the inside of his knees. And So in December of 22 and February of 23, he had both his knees replaced. He was pumped. He was so excited to show off his new straight legs. They weren't bow-legged anymore. And he walked around with his chest puffed out and said, hey, I'm now taller than you. He gained a few inches, actually, with the new knees. And he was pumped to get back to his projects, to get back out in the yard and uh, get back to work. He's a handyman. He's, uh, like I said, a man's man. So it was really shocking when suddenly in August he passes away, and it really kind of seemed like all for nothing, that he got these new knees for nothing. And as our family is praying and thinking through the service, his memorial service, landed on a passage in Isaiah 40 as the passage to be preached from. And it's really hard for me to read the end of that chapter and not be happy about where Papa Jim is now. It says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. 
They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run, run, and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. See, the truth is that Papa Jim has better knees now than he could ever have hoped for this side of eternity. And our passage this morning in Mark chapter 2 validates this fact. This former paralytic stands to show us that we have a compassionate king in whose kingdom evil, sickness, pain, hurt, suffering, disease, or paralysis have no say. He's the good king. He invites you into his kingdom. He invites you to trust him. You'll notice, however, that the physical healing is not the only act of Jesus in the story, nor is it even the focal point of the story. The friends bring the paralytic to Jesus for physical healing, and they find out that he is indeed King Jesus who's ushering in a new kingdom. But the first words out of Jesus' mouth are about forgiving sin so that Jesus can prove to them that he is Jesus, our God. I picture myself in this scene, sitting there in the room, and being just as confused as everybody else, that this man has a very clear pressing need. He's a paralytic. The friends are convinced that that's his pressing need. The paralytics is convinced that's his pressing need. The whole crowd is convinced that's his pressing need. It is so clear, his need. And yet, Jesus is more concerned with the man's sin. And here is our inciting incident, the moment where the friction takes off in the story. For the first time, and there's many more to come, Jesus is at loggerheads with the religious leaders. His claim to have the authority to forgive sin puts him on par with God. And finally, we have some recorded reactions from the crowd. The religious leaders, they balk at his authoritative claim. No one, no one can forgive sins but God. They knew that his claim of forgiving sin was a claim of divinity. They knew that it sounded a little outlandish. It sounded a little ridiculous. And they knew that the penalty for that claim was death. But Jesus responds with yet another thing that only God can do. Only God knows the hearts of man. Only God can discern the thoughts and intentions of man. So Jesus authenticates one aspect of his divinity with another. And he's putting his divinity on full display for the crowd. He is not merely a messenger who's passing along a verdict that's been handed down by somebody else. He speaks with authority in this story because he is the authority. Jesus is both the messenger and he himself is the message. Make no bones about it. He's God. And he answers the question that is beneath all of the paralytic's longings. He answers the question that's actually beneath all of the crowd's longings. He answers the question that's actually beneath all of our longings. But it wasn't the question that they thought. It was the question, how do I find peace? And Jesus forgives the man's sin. It wasn't the question they were asking. It wasn't the question they were seeking. But it was the answer that the paralytic needed more than anything else in his entire life. Jesus is trying to show the crowd, and by extension, he's showing us that the biggest problem in a person's life is not suffering. The biggest problem in a a person's life is his or her sin. 
In essence, Jesus is telling the paralytic, hey, I can cure your physical paralysis, but that doesn't go deep enough. I know that you think that that's what your biggest longing is, and yes, I can cure you, and you'll be able to walk, and what a beautiful thing that'll be, that'll be awesome, but you'll still be alienated from God. Your soul will still be unsettled. Your sins will still have sway over you. You won't be at peace, and eventually, you'll come back to me and ask for something else. What you really need, what you really long for, is forgiveness. And such is the way our hearts work too, right? Like left, left unchecked, my heart will continue to come up with new ideas, new things, new places that I can run and come to Jesus and even ask him for that I think will finally satisfy. And they don't. They never do. But what I'm doing in that moment is I'm forgetting that the best gift is the giver himself. You see, physical or circumstantial happiness is always fleeting. Spiritual happiness, happiness that comes from being reconciled to God, happiness that comes from having your sins dealt with and experiencing forgiveness is not. In 2005, there's this really interesting interview on 60 Minutes. Some of you might know this guy. His name's Tom Brady. He's who we might uh, argue is one of the better quarterbacks to ever touch a football. But in 2005, he's 27. He's won three Super Bowls. He's at the top of the football world. Everything that he could have wanted to accomplish in his career, he's done it. At 27. So he should be at ease. He should be happy. He should be content. He should be at peace. By all accounts, the interview does not go that way. He he certainly doesn't convey the idea that he's any of those things. As Brady talks about his life, you get the sense that he's really unsettled. You get the sense that he's unsatisfied, that he's longing for more. In the interview, he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? He keeps going. He says, there's got to be more than this. This isn't all it's cracked up to be. What else is there for me? And the interviewer responds, well, what's, what's the answer? And Brady responds with exasperation, I, I wish I knew. And simply recounting the story to you almost doesn't quite do it justice because it's in Brady's facial expressions that you see the questions, you see the searching, you see the longing, you see the uncertainty. You hear it in his voice too. His voice almost quivers as he responds. He had gotten the thing that he had desired more than anything else in in his entire life. And yet he's still unsatisfied. And I wonder if Tom Brady and the paralytic are both paradigmatic for us in our context. And while our circumstances are very different or could be very different than both, our deepest need is still the same. We need forgiveness of our sins. We long for peace and peace between us and God. And Jesus is standing there in this story, jumping up and down, waving his arms, pointing at himself, saying, hey, it's me. I can deal with your sin. I can bring you back to God. 
I am the one who can extend to you the forgiveness that your soul so desperately longs for. I can reconcile you to God. It's me. I can do it because I am God. And it's that claim that incenses the religious leaders. And it's in that moment where the shadow of the cross creeps onto the scene. This budding conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders will get louder and louder and louder until Jesus is staring the cross in the face. See, right here in this story, Jesus puts a down payment on your forgiveness and on my forgiveness. And that forgiveness is extended to you in full on the cross. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows where his life is headed. He knows what's in view in the not-too-distant future, but he doesn't bat an eye. He counts you as worth it. He knows that forgiveness of sins requires death, but not just any death, his death, the death of Jesus, the God-man, the only one who is sufficient to pay for all of your sin and all of my sin. It's at the cross that forgiveness is extended to you in full for all, all of your sins. And when Jesus pronounces that over you, it's not done in part. It's not done 99% of the way. It's done completely. His forgiveness is full. It's whole. It's complete. And wherever you are with God this morning, whether you've been a Christian for decades or whether this is the first time you've thought about this God-man, Jesus, Jesus wants you to hear that your sins are completely and fully and entirely forgiven in him. And these identities of Jesus, that Jesus is both king and that he is God, can only make sense Because he is the promised Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one that all of Scripture has attested to and pointed to. He is the one that all the promises and the prophecies find their yes and amen. And he is the one that all of human history has longed for. He's the promised Messiah. He's Jesus the Christ. Which is precisely why he uses the phrase son of man in verse 10 to self-identify. He knows that there's a lot of other names that are used for various Messiah figures over the time and that each one of those comes with various expectations about who the Messiah is. Everybody in that crowd around him would have had some expectation of who they think the Messiah is supposed to be. Maybe the most prominent would have been that he's a political Messiah. He's come to overturn Roman rule and take the Jews back to the glory days. But by using that phrase, son of man, he would have confronted those expectations with a passage in Daniel chapter 7. This is the passage that Jesus would have been referencing in using that phrase, son of man. And listen, listen to these words from Daniel 7. This is a vision from Daniel seeing Jesus. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, Jesus. And he came to the ancient of days. And was presented before him. And to him, Jesus was given dominion and authority and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This son of man 
is the king. He's the king of the heavenly kingdom. The kingdom, not of this earth, but the kingdom that has no pain, no tears, no suffering. None of those things have any foothold. A kingdom where all the effects of the fall are rolled back. A kingdom that believers inherit. And the best thing about the kingdom is the king himself. This son of man is the one who has dominion. He has authority. He has authority to forgive sins. He has authority to reconcile people to God. This son of man is the one to whom a people is given, a people that he has purchased with his precious blood. They might be restored in relationship to him, a people that he has put at peace. And this son of man is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that all the scriptures have promised. He's the one who has come to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's the one who makes our souls sing, and he's the one who invites you and invites me to trust in him this morning. Pray with me. Jesus, we praise you. You are all these things. You are King Jesus, who's ushering in the kingdom There's no tears, no pain, no suffering. Jesus, you're God. Because of that, we can trust you when you say that our sins are forgiven. And Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. We thank you for what you've done for us and in us. We pray that you'd help us believe more and more these things. We believe, but we pray that you would help our unbelief, Jesus. We love you. pray these things in your strong name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand and receive the benediction, God's gracious word to you. And now to him who is able to present you faultless and to keep you from stumbling. I'm sorry. Let me do that again. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his throne of grace with exceeding great joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be glory and honor, majesty and dominion, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.